don't shoot, I can't breathe. Black lives matter, no justice, no peace. I know that we can overcome because I had a dream. Dream we tore this racist, broken system apart at the seams. You just heard musician Kimia Dawson singing from her song, At the Seams. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara Ongwele, Associate Director at the Madison Center. In this special episode, we're featuring the remarks from a live stream town hall on Wednesday, June 3rd, about ending systemic racism and creating a more inclusive campus, democracy, and society. The goal of this town hall is to put what is happening across the country in historical context, to talk about the role of protest in a democratic society, and to center black student, faculty, and staff voices in the conversation so that we can have a better understanding of their perspectives, needs, and experiences. And so that we can learn about what JMU and other institutions of higher education can do to dismantle racism and white supremacy and redress racial inequities. Our speakers included Dr. Amy Lewis in the School of Music, Dr. Terry Beitzel, a professor in JMU Justice Studies and director of the Mahatma Gandhi Center. Jordan Todd, who is with the Office of Residence Life at JMU. Norman Jones, the student representative to JMU's Board of Visitors. Aliyah McLean, who is the Woodson Martin Democracy Fellow at the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement this year. Kendalee Walker, Chair of Diversity and Inclusion in our Student Government Association. Noah Bank Green, President of JMU's branch of the NAACP and Kyle Towler, who is immediate past president of JMU's Black Student Alliance. The town hall was facilitated by Dr. Abe Goldberg, executive director of JMU Civic and Duke's Vote. This town hall is the first in a series that will explore topics related to dismantling racism and white supremacy. Other topics in this series will include rethinking policing, transforming narratives through art, music, and poetry, environmental justice, and redressing racial inequities in our economic, education, and health systems. Be sure to click on the episode notes for additional resources, especially the new guide from JMU Libraries called Anti-Racism in Action, as well as a new primer from our Democracy Fellows, Ryan Ritter and Ethan Gardner. While I am grateful to be here and to have this conversation, um, the time that's filled with a lot of emotion, a lot of rage, a lot of anger, and it's okay to feel. <sighs> and so as I begin, I wanna be intentional about establishing a very particular atmosphere and space that we have together. I would like for this space to be reflective and accountable. Um, with our time together, as you hear all the different people speaking today, um, I invite you to embrace discomfort. I invite you to recognize your complicity in maintaining these systems of oppression. I also challenge you to recognize how you benefit from white supremacist structures. 
I also challenge you to lift up the ideas from the Black community, from the Black communities, especially um, voices that are most more marginal, are marginalized and um, vulnerable. And then also, uh, I ask that you generate actionable steps to hold yourself accountable, not only yourself, but your family, the institutions in which you work, your spaces of faith. I ask that we hold these and lift these up during our time together. Now, I'll just jump in. Um, as I said before, I appreciate uh, this opportunity and thank you to all the people that have made this um, event possible. Um, I'm gonna use my time to tell you a little bit about me and to provide some reflections to help us further process our current reality in order to imagine a new future. So in the fall, I will assume uh, the role, the position of assistant professor of music education here in the School of Music. This past year, um, I completed the Preparing Future Faculty Fellowship um, and, um, and I am looking forward uh, to continuing uh, my relationships here uh, and my scholarship here. So I'm a teacher. I love teaching. I believe educators hold so much power, hold so much influence, starting from pre-K and up. And so that's why I believe it's incredibly important that we teach our students the realities of racial oppression. Uh, when I taught, I taught at a K-8 school, taught for six years in the Chicagoland suburbs. Absolutely loved it. I love the ability to create, to be creative with my students, gauge with my colleagues musically and help my students establish critical thinking skills. Um, and so also within those six years, it was from 2010 to 2006, uh, I, I experienced, um, an incredible amount of rage, an incredible amount of disbelief with regards to racial injustice. Many of the same feelings that I and many of us here feel today. Um, I felt uh, those emotions most notably when Trayvon Martin was murdered, um, when George Zimmerman was acquitted for that murder, the protests and uprisings after Michael Brown's murder and all of the additional victims and lives lost. And so during my time at this district, um, three of those years, I was uh, one of two black teachers in the district. Uh, for the other three years, I was the only black teacher in the district. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so I particularly, after uh, the protests and the uprisings in Ferguson, I found myself to be baffled by the silence regarding uh, racial injustice. I thought for sure there'd be some type of formal email at the least, or maybe a mention during a staff meeting, um, but there were silence. And so at the end of a particular staff meeting, um, with the surge and uh, this 
this this new fire black lives matter is just beginning i i i t- i i talked to my colleagues at the end of 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 that particular staff meeting this is what i said i said um i'm sure you all have heard of the black lives matter movement i think it's important for us as educators to understand that this movement um is not going anywhere. And it's important for us to understand it as educators, um, not only for ourselves, but in order to help our students um, process what's going on. Now, um, in response to that, I received silence. Um, Maybe my colleagues felt too uncomfortable. Maybe um, they didn't believe the the uh, social unrest was uh, justified. Maybe they didn't have the vocabulary to articulate their feelings. Um, we ended that meeting abruptly, awkwardly, and afterwards some individuals came up to ask how I was doing, but there was never any meaningful conversation as a staff regarding race. So I tell this story, and I open up this story, um, because it solidified my desire to learn more about racial injustice and identify what more I can do as a teacher to provide uh, critical awareness about racism and how we're complicit. And so with that experience, uh, I chose to pursue my PhD at Michigan State University. And uh, not only did I have the opportunity to work with incredible staff, incredible advisor um, and colleagues, I had the fortunate opportunity to connect with, um, to connect and work with uh, the Black Lives Matter Lansing chapter. And at this point, it's important to recognize that Black Lives Matter is much more than a hashtag. It's an organization um, that began after George Zimmerman's acquittal for Trayvon Martin's murder. Uh, It's a global network um, with autonomous chapters all over the world. And these chapters um, do what's best for their specific community. And there's multiple guiding principles for, um, for Black Lives Matter. Hop on that website if you haven't done so already. I wanna lift up a couple of uh, the principles being unapologetically black, which was coined by um, um, Black Youth Project 100. Um, and then also um, BLM is uh, trans and queer affirming. Uh, and so the guiding principle of the Lansing chapter was loving engagement. We organized and hosted rallies. Um, We hosted uh, many electoral justice events and different local debates. Um, But something that was most challenging during my time at, um, with the BLM chapter in Lansing um, was to imagine a world, to imagine a world that I would have never thought to imagine, a world without policing. I thought the suggestion was hyperbole, but it wasn't. And so what I did was I took a closer look at um, the organizations that are connected with Black Lives Matter. Now, many of you may have uh, may understand and may be aware of uh, the movement for Black Lives, right? And the movement for Black Lives is distinct from Black Lives Matter. Um, the movement for Black Lives is um, is a 
an entity, space of multiple Black organizations um, uh, where they discuss, they create actions, they create demands uh, around issues affecting the Black, uh, affecting Black communities. And so Black Lives Matter is one of many uh, of the orgs within the movement for Black Lives. And so one of uh, the platforms of the movement for Black Lives was Invest Divest. And so it's simply investing specifically into the Black community while divesting um, from, um, from entities or policing that harm the Black community. I'll read specifically what it says from the website. This is what it says for Invest Divest. We demand investments in education, health, and safety of Black people instead of the investments of criminalizing, caging, and harming of Black people. We want investments in Black communities determined by Black communities and divestment from exploitative forces, including prisons, fossil fuel, police, surveillance, and exploitative uh, corporations. And so for me, um, uh, no matter how uncomfortable it may, may uh, folks feel, like the statement's clear. There's nothing in that statement that suggests that cops kneel with protesters in an empty illusion of solidarity. The statement is about concrete systemic transformation. And so now my ask for the community that we have here together, these questions include, what does it look like when there's an intentional systemic shift to purposefully invest in black communities and black people while divesting from harmful police and police practices? What does it look like to address foundational effects of systemic racism, including inequitable access to healthcare or education, also including um, police brutality, harassment, um, by divesting from harmful police and police practices. So what might that look like in your work institutions? What might it look like in your spaces of faith? What might it look like in your family and within yourself? So at this moment, I, I want you to gauge your reaction to this ask, this idea of invest, divest. Maybe you feel a uh, hesitation, tension, you know, uh, to, to even imagine that type of world. If so, I ask why? Or maybe you're geared up and you're ready to explore and to act on what it takes to create a lasting transform, uh, lasting transformation that intentionally invests in Black communities and Black life. So as I close and uh, we push forward with this event, um, I, like many other Black folks, have received a number of texts uh, from uh, white friends um, asking what they can do, what can they do as allies. And um, I guess one of the things I ask is um, for you to listen, listen to the ideas that are coming from Black communities, especially coming from the Black communities that are most marginalized or vulnerable. And once you listen to those ideas, 
it's been your t job to continuously generate these actionable steps to hold yourself accountable to those ideas, right? In order to make them a reality, right? And that doesn't just include yourself, that includes your family, your, the institution in which you work, and your spaces of faith. And so now that we have this understanding, I wonder how you can use this information to help push for an end towards systemic racism and create an inclusive, equitable, and liberated society. I do appreciate my time. Thank you all. Thank you. Please allow me now to introduce Dr. Terry Beitzel from the Department of Justice Studies. He is also the director of the Mahatma Gandhi Center for Global Nonviolence here at James Madison University. Terry, I wonder if you could speak to us about the history of protest, why it matters, and the role of activism in creating a more inclusive democracy. And then I also wonder if you could address, from your perspective, what white allyship looks like and why it is so important. Okay, and I guess um, I'm assuming everyone can hear me. Okay, um, you know, one of the first things I faced when you when I was asked to do this is that um, I'm a North American white male. And, you know, that is fairly obvious. So I don't feel like I am here. I am here as a student, not as someone to um, necessarily give advice, but, um, you know, to certainly look over things. And I, um, I think one way that I start to think about this and that we start to think about, well, what is, um, in one course I teach, I always ask the students at the beginning of the class, is it ever okay to break a law? And of course they're kind of mixed reviews. And then we go into a, a um, I do a grading exercise where I give them each a grade just a, a um, I hand them an index card with a grade already on it uh, from A to F. And then uh, we have a conversation and I tell them, you know, please hand in your index card and that's your grade for the semester. Of course, some people are very happy. Uh, some people are not. And then we start a discussion about is that justice? Why, why not? You know, is that fair? And so we always, and that takes usually about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And we go through all of these different exercises, but, um, you know, we're kind of left with the classroom. And what happens with most of the people there is that you find that those who benefit from the system uh, have little incentive even to do anything about the system, even though they may be the first to say that this system was not fair. I got, I received an A in this class, but I did nothing. And they will say, no, that's not justice. And, uh, you know, they realize that is not justice just as much as the person that got uh, the F in class. But they realize, but then trying to get, you know, and so we go through a number of, of scenarios of what they might do. And what 
we've found throughout, I've been doing this for now about 12 years, and uh, the students are very reluctant in many ways to organize. And so that's one of the things that I, I am very hopeful in just seeing the protests now, is that this is something very different and very big going on. Uh, so anyway, getting past that little grading exercise, but it really kind of makes the, you, the students more aware that sometimes the system itself is broken and that sometimes the system itself needs to change. So many of them do puzzle solving exercises where they figure out like, how could I train, uh, change the grade on my card? Or how could I convince you that I need um, another grade? And so, you know, but then we, we finally get to the place where they say, no, it's really about problem solving, that this whole system itself is broken. And so that's one of the main things. And then we start a whole, you know, that becomes the basis uh, for the class. And we deal with questions like, when is it ever a good idea to break the law? And, you know, you can go back to Rousseau, obviously Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and say, well, you know, it is, you should never obey unjust laws. And so, you know, this gets into big questions of what is a person, how does society work, and how does change happen in a democracy? And then we go through a whole section where we look at the United States and the movement from slavery to civil rights, 1964. And we realize that things, there's still so much work to be done. You know, the, 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 we're not over. So anyway, trying to talk a little bit about protests and um, I'm not going to give a bunch of memes. I've been uh, collecting memes over the protests and it's very saddened, um, you know, very disheartening, but at least one talk, um, I just got back from India about a month or two ago, and I didn't realize this would be the experiment, but my talk there was mainly the greater the challenge, the greater the opportunity. That the only time we can really do a huge change, like a social revolution, is when there's a huge challenge. And so I did not know that I would be confronted with, uh, you know, all of a sudden the, uh, the 1919 uh, Spanish flu, the stock market crash, and the race riots of 1968, all within about a three month period. So I think in the irony of this is there's an incredible opportunity for change. Now, and I think many people are, are trying to grasp that. And I think many people understand that. So that's the very hopeful side of this incredible challenge. Now, um, when I look a little bit, and I won't talk for too long about this, but when I think about the five keys to revolutions, to successful revolutions, the first is really mass and popular, popular uprisings. If we, that's the first stage um, in the study of revolutions. And then the second key phase is the descent of the elite, of those also in charge. And probably the third step 
is the descent of the military and the police. Now we are beginning to see descent from the elite, you know, whether or not it's enough, but we're starting to see it. And just today I noticed in, um, was it Tennessee where the, the, um, the National Guard refused to carry their, uh, their shields, they, lay, they laid them down. So there's something really happening here when the military and the police refuse to enforce the commands of the regime. So I'm talking broadly about revolutions in a sense, but these are three very hopeful things that I hope we can take advantage of to make a better democracy. Because I think that, that conflict itself is the engine that drives a democracy. That's especially healthy conflict. Um, you know, now being the director of, of the Gandhi Center, you may ask, well, well, what's my perspective on violence? And do I see the protests going on now as violent? And um, I perhaps have a different reading of Gandhi. I won't go into all the details. But for me, I see violence primarily as killing. That I do not, these, there, there are some violent aspects, maybe some scary, scary aspects to the protests, but I think by and large, they are very nonviolent. So I would consider them to be nonviolent protests. And why is that important? Well, from the empirical research done on revolutions, uh, nonviolent resistance or nonviolent movements tend to be four times as likely to succeed as violent insurrections. Um, and it's also um, nonviolent, these kinds of uh, civic resistance movements, they can actually involve many people. And sometimes uh, the grandmothers have the most power in these forms of protest and these forms of revolutions. I won't go into, into examples about that. But, um, you know, it's much less uh, physically, it's less threatening against the regime in power. And the protest itself um, is um, also gathers more momentum from people, you know, when it tends to be nonviolent. And I consider what's going on now to be nonviolent. I mean, and so... Um, um, and when you get the police and the military to not enforce the command of the regime, uh, or uh, resistance movements are 16 times more likely to succeed. So I, I think this fits into some of Amy's questions here. And I'm, I mean, I'm certainly outside of, you know, some of this some of the insight that many of you have. But I just think there's, there's so much uh, to be angry about. But at the same time, there's also this avenue of hope, you know, that things can change. And I think, um, I mean, I see, you know, this is my own personal perspective, but I think we, we require a large scale social revolution in the United, in the United States 
to change many of these huge structures. So I will just get now, um, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm just brushing over this and we, you know, we could take uh, two semesters to talk about this, but the one uh, I will kind of end with this last point and that is what can allies do and what can I do? And here's my, I've been working on this for a while, but it, it is my epistemology of, of serving justice, uh, I call it. And number one, we have to recognize that something is unjust, that something is wrong, and there is a suffering that doesn't need to be. Number two, I think you always need to realize that I myself might be wrong, that I could be completely wrong in my assessment of a situation. And um, also that something I do will any, all social actions have negative unintended consequences. So no matter what good I do, I'm bound to do some non-good with that. So what should we do given those factors? We have limited knowledge. There's something wrong in the world. No matter what I do, some sort of negative consequence will follow. But I feel I must act nonetheless. So my answer to that, and this is a provisional, but is to serve other people, is to serve those in the middle of the fight, you know, and really listen and to serve them, you know, not to, not for me to be the leader, but for me to give what I can of my resources, my access to things, you know, at the Gandhi Center to give a platform, you know, for these kinds of things. So I don't, I don't want to talk anymore because I want to hear what everyone else has to say. Um, but just to say that um, one exciting thing at the Gandhi Center is that uh, John Lewis has just accept, accepted an award uh, from the Gandhi Center and we will be doing, uh, hopefully he will be coming to, ca uh, to Canvas given his health and we will also be giving uh, two, two scholarships in the name of, of John Lewis. So anyway, um, I really want to hear what everyone else had to say. I hope what I said made some sense. I have, um, I jumped around a bit, but anyway, um, my apologies if it was um, not as coherent as it, it uh, should have been, but thank you. Thank you, Terry. Next, I would like to introduce our colleague and friend, Jordan Todd. Jordan works at James Madison University in the Office of Residence Life, and he is an internal um, advisory board member for the Madison Center. Jordan, thank you for being here. Thanks, Abe. It's uh, welcome to, to, to everyone else uh, uh, listening along. It's uh, fantastic uh, being in, in this space. Um, I think I definitely um echo uh, uh amy um and saying that it has been a a very very tough week um being black in america um but i i but it's also there is some there is some hope um that there have been so many folks um who who are starting to wake up 
uh, to, uh, to, to uh, the realities um, that Black folks face daily and have faced um, since 1916 uh, on this continent. Um, and I, I, I wanted to at least provide uh, some reflective questions for folks um, as they are, are, are engaging in racial justice, uh, but students and also faculty uh, and staff. Um, but, but before I do that, I, I, did, I did want to, to bring an analogy so it's a better I think it has helped me better frame what what work is necessary and what work is um, is ahead of us. Um, I, 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 I have to think about justice as a house, um, and I think a lot of well-ended folks will see a leak in the ceiling, uh, and there's now there is a brown spot. So they're gonna go to their local home equipment store and buy and buy 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 paint. Paint is cut 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 the hole, and now and now it feels like the leak is is fixed. Three months, three months months later, though, the the brown spot is back. And then we think about, well, maybe there's actual leak. Then we go in there and we think and we see and we investigate. And then we leak thinking that the problem is solved. But the issue is, is that the leak then made the studs in the house rot. And what we're asking folks to do, and specifically our white allies in this fight, is instead of keep going to buy more paints, we're asking you to tear down the studs. Because the studs are the system in which we live in, and the studs are rotting, and the house is falling down. Um, now is a time for all of us to build a new house. And I think there are a lot of folks who say, uh, I'll burn it down as a, as a figure of your speech, but that's what, what, what they are, are talking about. Um, they're asking folks, and they're saying folks, it's the same folks that the house that we're living in right now is rotten to its core, and we're asking you all to build a new house. Um, and so hopefully that these questions here uh, will help us imagine what that house will I'll look like um, and making sure that the, that the studs and the, the foundation um, is one that centers marginalized folks, but, 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 but more specifically black lives. Um, and so if you are, are a student, I invite you to think about the role that race plays in your in your daily experience, both at home and and on campus. Um, if you haven't considered this question before, I want you to ask why. Um, what has insulated you from thinking about race uh, in the ways that Black folks do? Um, what what experiences have informed your uh, understanding? of race? Uh, was there a friend, 
a teacher, um, parents, guardians as well. What was that? What was that formative moment for you? Um, I invite you to think about what voices you are listening to. Uh, social, uh, either on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, but also in person too. Um, if they look like you, ask yourself why, and where can I go to 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 seek out more Black voices? Um, where where what are some places on campus where you can engage in direct action? Um, does that mean a protest? Does that mean a, a letter or an email to an administrator? Um, are you aware of organizations and committees that are fighting for racial justice on campus? And if, and, and if not, uh, what can you do to make sure that that, 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 that information is widely available? Um, and then a really important question to ask as well is what are you willing to lose in this fight? Um, power cannot be created nor destroyed. It can only be shared. Um, and so what are you willing to give up so that black students can experience some justice during, during their experience on campus? Um, where do you, where, where do you, 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 your organizations stand when it comes to social justice and inclusion? Um, did you, did you have a, 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 a written statement? Um, if not, who can you ask to, 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 to begin the, the process of drafting one? Um, what does what do your uh, recruitment practices look like? Um, are you looking for the same students? Uh, what does fit mean for your organization? Um, and do those expectations uphold notions of supremacy? Um, what skills do you need to develop to effectively engage in direct in direct action and dialogue? Um, I, I, I know that so many students right now are eager and ready and willing to act, um, but, but what do you need to do to pause for a, a, a moment and think about what do I, I, I need, need to learn uh, to, to make sure that my action is, is, is as effective as possible in serving the, the, the right people? Um, and also thinking about who on campus are your allies? Um, what faculty and staff have made it clear to you that they are on your side? And how can you leverage their access and their space and their power uh, to achieve to, 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 uh, achieve lasting change? Um, and now thinking about faculty and staff as, as well and using our power and, and and our spaces, um, I'm, you know, I think it's important to think about what your students are reading, uh, what is on your syllabus, um, both as books and articles, but also statements. Um, how are you making it clear to Black students that, 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 that you care about them, 
their lives and their and their success. Um, how are you also in the process uplifting the voices of black scholars in your field? Um, are you presenting counter narratives in your classrooms? Um, how how are those narratives challenging the notions of a white supremacy? Um, are you using critical race theory frameworks to frame uh, papers and assignments and and discussions? What are the hiring practices in your department? Um, do they support the ability for, for a black colleagues to show up as themselves? I ask you and, 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 and invite you to interrogate notions of fit. Um, and, when, and, 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 and when someone doesn't, doesn't fit, um, thinking really critically about why and whether or not your expectations of, of, of a colleague and whether or not they 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 uphold notions of of white 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 supremacy as well. Um, how are you sharing power with students over the content and the curriculum as well? And knowing and making sure that students and especially black students see themselves. Um, in the uh, curriculum, um, what are you willing to lose as well for your black colleagues and for you, your black students? Um, and but probably the most important question is that I know that the that there's a large push for for, for students and, and staff to gain competency around the diversity and inclusion and social justice. Um, but do your assignments replicate the same systems that you are trying to dismantle? Um, if you have an assignment on your sheets currently um, that asks students to go to a minority organization on campus and observe them, I highly recommend that you redo that assignment. Um, you are putting the burden, you are, you, are, you are treating black students and marginalized folks on campus as an object in which privileged students can learn from, and you are centering privileged students in the, in, in the uh, learning process. Um, and, and if you're wanting to engage in racial justice and racial justice education, in your classrooms, um, I highly encourage you, you, if you think critically, and making sure that the self work is uh, a is is a, a prioritized. Thank you for those words, Jordan. Um, I'm now very pleased and honored to introduce Aliyah McLean a recent graduate of James Madison University and former student government president. Aaliyah is now the Woodson Martin Fellow for the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement. Thank you so much, Aaliyah, for being with us tonight.
Yes, of course. Um, and thank you all for having me. And while it was like the first public announcement of me really staying at JMU, so I'm so glad to really be here um, still doing this work because clearly it is so evident that work has got to be done on our campus. And I think we've gotten to a point, um, I loved everything that Jordan mentioned and Amy and Terry and everyone on, on this panel is really just saying that um, this idea that we have to build a new um, house, right? Um, and people are probably right now so confused on what that really looks like and what that means to them um, and understanding, okay, so how do you um, build this house? Um, and I just want to start with this idea that, um, so people understand at a predominantly white institution that Black America is tired. They are so tired of constantly being the people that have to go in and fix everything, being the people that are told to, okay, well, we have to build the house up, so we're going to give you the task to do it. And so I wanted to kind of go um, and a little bit more about what does this look like to have a lifestyle of sustainable change to really be an ally and to kind of understand not to put these burdens on your Black students, Black colleagues, Black friends, and Black family. Um, and so um, Amy said it so well. The first thing is to truly listen. Um, to um, those that you have in their space. Um, and really understand like what is their experience? Be curious, but be genuine. Um, a lot of times you hear like people saying they wanna be allies. Um, well, okay, I'm just gonna do what I think I have to do. But truly to first do the work, you have to understand. Um, and you cannot do that until you really understand the experiences. But that also means you cannot generalize and kind of overlap every um, black student, black worker into this one complex. You have to get to know um, different students, different faculty members and different people to understand their experiences because we all come from different areas and just have so much to share. And then um, once you really listen and kind of um, start to really understand this experience, you have to educate yourself. And see a lot of times I think when um, a lot of people want to be allies and they're trying to kind of understand something a little different, they um, of course listen, but then they just kind of expect you to teach them everything, right? So they're like, Aaliyah, so what does that look like? Oh, Aaliyah, what should I do? Oh, what should I wear? What should I say? What, what do I do? Is this post right? Did I word this right? Is this good? And at the end of the day, you cannot always rely on your black friends, black colleagues to always educate you. You have to do the work yourself. And that really starts with your institutions and these systems that we're really talking about. And so um, I would really love this kind of concept as, as you look towards your organization um, to start doing this work, really see um, who are you really placing um, these ideas and tasks on? Are you really just um, bringing people up to the table and giving them a place to speak? Are you having multiple people in the room able to make decision makings that are um, different minorities from marginalized communities? And so something I always say um, is so important is um, there's just a difference of being curious and wanting to know more about the experience to really do this work and then tokenizing them to do it for you. Um, and so if you don't know what this idea of tokenism is and what this word is, um, I'll give you a definition. Um, so it's the practice of doing something such as hiring a person who belongs to a minority group only to prevent criticism and give the appearance that people are being treated fairly. And at a predominantly white institution, I cannot stress how important this is to understand. A lot of times now you listen, you wanna do this work, you just start bringing minority people to the room, right? You start bringing um, African-Americans to the table and you're saying, okay, I'm good. I got them hired, they're in the job, now you do it. And that is not honestly the way you need to go. And so honestly, when you're doing this, you're putting an invisible labor on them because you're putting it on the committee to be the, just kind of be the end all for everything. Oh, you have the answer, you'll do it. We, we appoint our black person, we're good. There's something else that we have to do and that is not the way to go. And so I always say, um, if you're really truthfully trying to empower students and people of color, you need to get to a space where that invisible labor um, is not just a burden on them and placed on them, that everyone in the business has a stakeholder in this um, idea. 
And so I always say um, it's so important um, also as a higher education system that we're always educating ourselves because we're the ones crafting the next leaders of the world. And so when you're really doing that, um, how are they being representative? Who's in the room? Who's on our leadership teams in organizations? Who's always the one to speak and come around? And really, where are you kind of meeting them short? And so I always tell people, when you are making a new organization, um, of course, and when you're electing new leaders, you know, it's so easy to say, well, their resume isn't it. Um, and they don't have that experience. But question yourself, maybe why don't they have the experience? And are you giving them a leverage to get the experience they need? Um, and so I always question that because it's so, um, I think, as even a black student at a white, um, white institution, for me, I always make myself feel like I have to do more to even just um, meet the mark, right? So I feel like to kind of be on the same level as another white um, student, I have to, um, of course, my resume has to be longer. I have to oversell myself. But again, question yourself and even your hiring practices. Why are you doing that? What are you really looking for? Are you looking for the values of what they're going to bring in or what they've done? And so always question your why and everything, you know, instead of just saying, well, they don't have the experience, they're not someone that we want, really say, you know, why don't they, are we creating that? Are we creating the professional development for them to even grow and learn? And that's where this kind of comes into looking at your systems um, and looking to how you even oppress people of color and your everyday um, like lifestyle and work. And so um, that is what I'll just leave you with right now. Um, but just really remember those practices and really keep that going as we kind of continue and as you hear from the students. Thank you so much, Aaliyah. And, and as a reminder to those of you on Facebook Live, we're gonna be here until 8.30, hearing from all of our speakers and then opportunities for questions uh, with what time is left. There is a lot to unpack here. Um, and, and I look forward to hearing from um, next, Norman Jones. Um, Norman is a JMU student and is uh, the JMU student representative on our board of visitors. Norman, it is wonderful to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Goldberg. Uh, it's really good to see you and all of you here as well on the call. Um, some of you new faces to me, some of you um, really good friends and, and uh, peers that I've been able to work with and get to know. So um, I guess to jump right in, I wanted to tag on to what Aliyah was saying about rebuilding this house. Um, and Jordan, thank you for, I don't know that it could be articulated any better. Um, when we're looking at rebuilding um, this house, and, and by this house we refer to JMU, um, because that's what we're here for today, not only to dismantle systemic racism across the country and hopefully across the world, um, we're trying to make an impact on our campus as well. So what does it look like when we tear down the studs at our blue stone buildings? What does it look like when we tear down the studs of our red roof quad? Um, the, the, the value of reaching out to minority students, like Aaliyah said, through tokenism um, is one thing that has to be dismantled. Um, and I think an important angle to highlight is that there's an aspect of tokenism that is done with malintention um, to plug students in for appearance. I think there's an unintentional aspect where um, white leaders, white figures with some sort of power that, like, as Jordan said, they should be sharing. Um, the rationale often seems well, you're a black or you're a brown student. Wouldn't you want to be in the conversation? We want you here so we can do what you think is necessary. Yet that burden is still on their shoulders. Um, so again, I just wanna really reiterate that when we reach out to these communities, when we reach out to black students like myself and everyone on this call, um, and so many at JMU, we have to remember that we put them in the room for a reason so that we can support. We are allies and we work together to make this change. Um, 
not just for me to pitch the idea. Um, and, and now I have to come up with the structure. And so what, is that, what does that detail look like on our campus when we wanna make that, that change, that systemic divestment from racial inequality and systemic racism? Um, I would say there are a number of things that could happen, but perhaps the most present and persistent one is visibility. Not, of our, not only of our minority students, um, but of the white leaders on our campus that so often claim and value diversity and representation. We have organizations on campus. We have a Center for Multicultural Student Services. Um, I think the JMU has done some good work to make sure that students have a place to go to. But what good is that place if uh, it's an echo chamber and we have black students and brown students left in those spaces to complain and be upset and rightly look for justice uh, among themselves. If we don't have white allies, if we don't have white faculty, if we don't have white staff, white leaders coming into those spaces respectfully, saying I'm here to serve and hear what the problems are, how do we expect to change? And then we have situations where people say, well, why is there an outbreak? Why is there some sort of um, uprising, unrest? It's the voice of the unheard. To, to paraphrase Dr. King. So what that looks like at JMU is making sure seamless organizations and events um, are not just taking up space on flyers and Facebook posts and, and social media. Um, they have an impact and a value for students, faculty, and staff. This also looks like a new system, a new way of operating, making sure we put student voices in high places. For me, as the student representative to the Board of Visitors, the highest level of governance at the university. I've noticed over my first term um, that there's a lot of work to be done. And I have a lot of peers, a lot of people in this community that are doing great work. Um, but if we have one or two people willing and in positions to vocalize that work, I think that it nullifies the impact. So we need to elevate other students in other positions throughout each of our colleges. We need to elevate students across campus, even in the divisions that don't seem clearly related to the student experience, but we know they have an impact. We know that CARES funding and financial aid clearly impacts a student's life and their experience at a university, the education that they're receiving to go into the work world and continue dismantling things. So why aren't we hearing about how those practices are impacting their daily lives? We know that students give back as alumni our Black alumni chapter at JMU has been a vital presence and one that's been sought out for years. Um, I know quite personally that. And so when we talk about making systemic changes and we want to value diversity and make sure that we're creating a network of Black and Brown students who are supported by a primarily white institution, it's about elevating students now in those positions for advancement before they graduate, before they leave, and we're still, well, not still, but then we become humbly asking for donations for scholarships to give back to our communities as if we weren't doing that work on campus in the first place. It's about making sure we have those spaces and admissions. When we talk about diversity and bringing in new faces, new voices to our campus, it's great to have outreach tactics for prospective students, but those are still informed by heteronormative and, and white perspectives. So while we might have diversity outreach, who is creating and crafting that outreach? That is not to say that we have an entirely flawed system at every level at JMU, but it's not apparent that we're acknowledging the problem and working to include the voices 
that will hopefully, and I know and believe they will change that. I think it's time that we elevate those students, faculty and staff of color to make sure they're part of that process, to make sure that as we go through this change that I think needs to happen and it will be happening, we have to make sure that those voices are part of the conversation, restructuring, rebuilding that house. Because if we don't, we'll end up with more pretty wallpaper and, and a leak in the roof behind it. So it's important that we, we elevate our students, elevate those that we're talking about changing for, you have to have them at the table. We have to have this discussion together because otherwise the problem persists. And again, that discussion is more than asking for input, asking for questions and how does this make you feel and what do you think we could do? It's saying, here's our problem. What is your solution? And here are our resources that we're going to throw behind you and walk with you and use everything that we can to make sure we reach that goal. Because my view of equality in, in a general sense, as black America, our view of equality can't be dictated by white practices. And so we need to make sure we change how we form those conversations, how we form that action. Um, and that has to start today. And so I'm looking forward to, to seeing that change, not only this year, but in years to come, specifically by elevating student of color to those rooms and having those discussions immediately. Thank you, Norman, for uh, sharing with us and being here this evening. Um, I would like to next introduce uh, Kendalee Walker. Uh, Kendalee Walker is a JMU student and currently the Student Government Association Diversity and Inclusion Chair. Kendalee, thank you for being here tonight. Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am so I'm just thankful that we have a space to talk about this and really uh, hear from everyone on this panel. It's been great um, and just really educated and informative. Um, first, um, starting from the student government standpoint, um, we released a statement um, regarding what's going on in our country. And I first want to say is that statement was a collective effort from our leadership team on behalf of our leadership team. Um, hearing um, everyone's concerns and everyone's um, opinions and um, on collaborative efforts of our uh, student speaker, uh, Michaela Dukes, and our legislative action um, chair, Anna Canole. They did such amazing work um, just hearing and understanding and kind of getting a broad, broad perspective of what can SGA do, um, what is uh, the next steps. And the next steps for us is creating a task force. And I do want to say our student government is not clear on this task force. Our student government is creating a task force that wants to bring a collaborative effort between all our students on this campus. Um, bringing back SJ's resources, pushing it, pushing it just exactly like Norman said, um, using our resources to elevate our students and push them to this, these tables with administration, um, with faculty and staff, um, celebrating these voices that um, are crying out for help and it's, it's important, it's necessary. Um, CMS orgs have organizations um, for black and minority students that continue to celebrate and have these spaces that black students feel at home at a place at JMU where it seems like their voices are not heard. Um, it's important that we continue to push this work um, to the forefront. And just like Norman said, this cannot, they cannot just sit on a flyer. They cannot take up spaces, but understanding um, how to really educate yourself, um, educate how you can be an ally, how you can help, um, how you can uh, best support this community. Um, I really do want to understand that our SGA statement supports and uh, supports black students. Something that a statement that many statements have not come out and said is supporting black students, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, 
calling out systemic racism on our campus. Um, on our task force are pillars of uh, community action and um, really having a space uh, for advocacy at the local and state level of going out to vote um, and hearing, uh, I, going out to vote to have legislators um, have these people representing an office to um, really hear your concerns, hear your voices. Um, we cannot sit on a campus that has buildings named after racist Confederates. If we wanna push towards inclusivity, that's, that's not inclusivity. Um, if we really wanna push um, enrollment, having black students and minority students really be pushed um, into JMU and feel welcome, not just a number. Black students, minority students cannot continue to be a number. Uh, we really need to push and elevate. And I think that's what SGA um, really wants to bring everyone to the table to have collective and collaborative action um, to hear the necessary voices. Um, so I think from that standpoint, that's our plan of, that's our plan of action. Thank you, Kendall Lee, for your words and your leadership. I would now like to introduce Noah Banks-Green, a current student at James Madison University, affiliated with our uh, student chapter of the NAACP. Noah, thank you so much for being with us tonight. I wanna say thank you for having me um, to give me this opportunity to be here and speak. Um, I really just wanted to talk about and a campus, our responsibility of experience. So I feel that at JMU, that being a minority student, our experiences shape who we are on this campus and it shapes how other people treat us on this campus. And I feel that when you are having a problem on campus or you feel like you need to talk to somebody, you need to share your experience. You can either share your experience with somebody was of color, you can share it with a person who isn't of color. And I feel like that these experiences just allow us all to like get to know one another and actually be able to move forward. And I feel like when we feel on this campus that we are having like a negative experience, it is our job to inform. But as Aaliyah was mentioning, we are not supposed to be like a token system to inform people who aren't informed. It is everybody's job to educate themselves in the end because then people of color feel tired and they feel like nobody's really listening to them and that they're just trying to spout out information to get people to understand where they're coming from. When, when we have these experiences, it's a learning experience for both people. And that is our job to inform, but it's everybody's job to educate themselves. And then on this campus, when we are introduced to positive experiences, how do we keep them going? Um, and I go back to just listening. Listening is very important, no matter what you're doing, no matter what position you're in. Even if you're just somebody on the street, just listening to somebody will let you know a lot about that person without even having to open your own mouth. And feedback is very important. Feedback allows people to shape their next experience allowing people to like either like do a survey or just asking somebody how did you feel about this situation or giving somebody a platform to speak on that allows for things to move forward and that goes to my last point here is moving forward just because something we don't agree with or something we feel like needs to change it is our job to change it and yes sometimes 
we can't do that by ourselves and we do need to include other people. But at the same time, we have to stand up and we have to move forward because if we're stuck back here, how do we get to the next step? How do we get to that step where everybody's inclusive? How do we get to that step where there's a large level of diversity on our campus? How do we get to that step where everybody feels comfortable and feels like JMU is home if we're not trying to move forward? And just overall, I feel like JMU that we try to be inclusive and we try to have diversity. And I feel like everybody, especially in the multicultural community is working really hard, but it takes more than a couple hundred of people. It takes the whole campus and it's a collective effort on everybody's part to try to move to what we feel is best for everybody. Thank you so much, Noah. We, we've got one more speaker and then the balance of our time will be for question and answers. Um, keeping in mind that the conversation will continue after tonight. Um, one thing we've heard consistently is the importance of, of listening. And so I'm grateful for all of our speakers tonight in sharing that perspective with us. Uh, Kyle uh, Trowler, you are the former president of the Black Student Alliance at James Madison University and affiliated as well with our NAACP chapter. Kyle. Wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, thank you. Um, I, I'd like to jump straight into it. Oh, cool. Give me a quick second. Uh, I'd actually first like to thank everyone for saying what you said. Um, and uh, it's really it's really been weighing heavy on my heart and whatnot. Um, but now I'm actually gonna jump right into it. Um, and the first thing that I'd like to do is uh, say other names uh, that ought to be mentioned um, for those who have been victims to police violence lately. And these are only five names of thousands of people um, who have dealt with, who have faced this and whatnot. Um, those names are George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, Sean Reed, and Tony McDade. And those are only five thousands of people. Who have, who have faced this in this country. <clears throat> uh, one of the things that us as students need to do is be able to be both critical and considerate at the same time, uh, especially moving forward here on campus. Uh, when I say that we need to be critical, I'm saying that we need to be critical of those around us. And we actually need to question um, the nature of what people say, uh, the nature of the realities that we understand. Um, and those realities can be very different for other peoples. Um, so it is very important to be very critical because I may uh, uh, respond to something uh, that is maybe covertly uh, racist or whatever it may be, whereas you would notice it because it was covertly racist. Um, so it's one of the things that are especially necessary uh, for students to realize, and especially white students here at JMU. And then also the other thing that students uh, need to be is also considerate. And this is when you are uh, putting yourself forward um, and whatnot. Are you doing what you ought to do in a way? Uh, being considerate is definitely necessary um, behind this movement and whatnot. Um, especially uh, for, uh, within oneself. 
And if you cannot be considerate, then there's no gonna, there's not gonna be change because it takes everyone being considerate um, more than anything. <clears throat> uh, another thing that I'd like to highlight as well um, is that here at JMU, <clears throat> we have uh, five values. And oh, excuse me, let me actually first by, uh, first state the vision of JMU. And that vision is to be the national model for the engaged university and engage with the ideas of the world, uh, excuse me, and the world. And right now, um, Black Lives Matter um, and the, the events of the past week have been uh, something that needs to be addressed and something that at JMU as a whole can always be better. Um, and JMU needs to do better um, because it, it, we have students here at JMU that are just as JMU as any other student, and the, we need the university to support us as just as much. Uh, the values of JMU are these five things, academic quality, community, diversity, excellence, oh, excuse me, six things, uh, excellence, integrity, and having a student focus. Uh, one of those things that I mentioned were diversity, and the statement for diversity that Jane puts out is we strive to be an inclusive community that values the richness of all individuals and perspectives. And what uh, I can say as us as black students need from JMU is for JMU to follow up with that. Uh, because I like, like um, uh, I had mentioned before, um, it, JMU needs to do better. Um, and I stress that because uh, during my time as president, I had realized that within JMU, um, that a lot of the burden of the issues of diversity um, often weigh on students first, uh, followed by student organizations, and then by uh, the Center for Multicultural Student Services, then other departments, and then JMU's administration following upwards. And so, this puts a great weight on students, and students ought to be uh, have a ought to have a university that fights for them rather than fighting on the university's behalf. And that's something that uh, I know students would love for JMU to do, um, and would would give us more of a reason to proudly say go Dukes. Um, and so, if instead of the model is flipped, where JMU's administration uh, trickling down to students um, and going through that model, that would definitely serve students a lot better because that's a university serving students. Uh, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Um, for the last 15 or so minutes, I'm going to try to address questions that have come up on Facebook during this important conversation. Um, and, and I would just invite any of our panelists to weigh in um, as you would like. Um, a question that I'm seeing, what plan of action does the administration have in place to address these issues on campus? Uh, Jordan, I know that you've been doing some work within student affairs, and I'm wondering if you could speak to that. 
Yeah, um, so um, really exciting things happening. I, uh, back in, in, in January, our senior leadership and student affairs approved a plan um, to add social justice and inclusion competencies on all of our professional evaluations uh, for this upcoming year. Um, and so all 250 uh, student affairs staff uh, uh, members here at AMU uh, will be will be um, having an opportunity to engage in conversations and dialogue around ways that that they can um, infuse social justice and inclusion into the their, their work. Um, this is an effort to acknowledge the fact that CMS is not the sole person, sole entity on campus that is responsible for this work, but it, it is on everyone in, in, in student affairs and also at JMU to take some, some responsibility there. Um, and so currently there's a plan in place to start um, a formal education uh, processes. Um, we have, we have um, distributed our, our resources uh, to all uh, of the staff and student affairs as well. Um, so this is just the, the first step of many, um, but I think it's an important first step to have a formal process um, where, where, where staff um, is having a formal conversation with their supervisor um, about these uh, important issues. Thank you, Jordan. Um, I wonder if any of our panelists could speak to how we move the needle um, from conversation. I know that that's something that a lot of people are thinking, and I, I'm one who believes that conversations on these issues is incredibly important. Um, these are incredibly important issues for us to be talking about, but sometimes there can be frustration that it never moves beyond conversation to see the type of change that we hope to see. Um, Norman, I see you nodding your head, and Amy, I see you nodding your head, and I would ask you all to uh, jump in if you don't mind. Okay. Norman, would you like to go first? <laughs> You're good to go ahead first. I'll, I'll just follow up. That's all. Okay, okay, cool, cool. No, 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 I appreciate you. Appreciate you all. No, um, you know, as... Uh, Jordan mentioned, like, there's meaningful work that's being done. And um, if we're looking to move the needle um, in a particular way, what you need to have is large scale action that creates widespread discomfort, right? Without this feeling of discomfort, we're not going to be able to push the needle either way. Right. And so whenever I mention uh, large scale action, what does that look like? That could look like a sizable fund increase to AAAD. 
um, uh, and uh, and what it is that um, we could do to support um, to support them and what they're teaching. Um, another large scale action, which uh, colleagues mentioned earlier this week, um, some other faculties mentioned this week, talked about what are our um, uh, what are our requirements for students in order to graduate, and do they have, um, and how can we make sure that they are in a space where uh, they are taking a class where they can learn. All, learn, um, learn about, um, um, learn about uh, systemic racism. Learn about uh, their complicity, our complicity within uh, within these systems. Learn about white supremacy and uh, be very overt with with um, making sure that every student that has this degree has gone through that process so that we can then create a more liberated, more equitable society. Norman, I, I look forward to like hearing what you have to say. 100% agree. Um, we talk about pushing the needle that, like you said, that does not require a small force. And I think over the years, we've seen many small forces or what appear to be small forces, which also um, is something I want to touch on. Uh, in the past year, being quite frank and honest, there are lots of efforts and initiatives that I've learned about from JMU. Lots of things that I think are good work, you know, good work is being done. Um, and some of it, like you said, Amy, it's sizable. We're making, so there's an effort to make a large impact, but it comes off as small, it seems small, because we lose the communication uh, value in that process. And so what I believe is oftentimes a common concern or even complaint of administration, faculty and staff is that well, we're doing this work here, we're doing this work there. Um, clearly, <laughs> there, there's a disconnect because the community that we're serving, the constituents at need, aren't visibly seeing, they don't recognize that work. There's no way for us to know. Um, and it's unfortunate to, to continue to believe that your institution is working to support you when there's no clear communication of those efforts, whether they're large or small. And so there's no way really that I think we can push the needle if the peers that we're serving don't know about it. Um, so we need to make sure that we communicate these things in ways that work. And I, I think so far there's evidence that it hasn't been working. The work we've done to support black students and the controversy, for example, around the naming of the new Jennings building is just one testament to how when communication is lapsed, when there isn't a clear message and there isn't clear dialogue either, not just one-way communication of this is what we're doing and why we believe it's right. This conversation, when that isn't apparent and visible, the needle doesn't move whether you do the action or not because the perception I think is just as important as the reality and both are, are crucial. They're not mutually exclusive. They both have to happen. Um, we can't have a reality of justice and diversity when students walk on the campus and that's not what they see and that's not what they feel. And the reverse is also true, obviously. So I wanted to make sure we make sure that value of communication and visibility is still present when we move the needle as well. Any other panelists like to weigh in on that question about how, how do we move the needle? Just very briefly, I think there, um, 
several ways we can think about this and in terms of responsibility. Um, I think when, when we live in a democracy, all of us incur some responsibility simply for the fact that we live in a democracy. And I think there's another form of uh, responsibility that we have by living in a democracy. And that's what um, some have referred to as metaphysical responsibility. And that's the idea that when we know something, but we refused to act. So I think those two things to keep in mind that no matter what happens in a um, democracy, we always have some responsibility. And now I, I think I'm going a bit larger than the university here. But I think for a lot of these changes to really take place, and I'm thinking very big, but in the sense of to um, use the dissent of the ruling elite, and that some of that is now, um, it's has been fracturing for months, for several years, but if we can figure out how to use that, that dissent for positive ways, I think those are some of the bigger things. I don't have all of the answers, but just very quickly, I think those are some of the things. And that goes somewhat, that's still in the university, but that goes somewhat outside of the university as well. A, uh, a faculty colleague on Facebook Live is asking, how can we as faculty make sure that we are hearing our students' lived experience without burdening them? I would love to hear from one of the current students on this. Um, I would say in like response to that is a lot of the times if you ask a student, especially student of color, just how their day is going, you'll get a lot more than that. <laughs> you'll get a lot of their experience here at JMU. They're like, well, this happened to me today. It's not the first time it's happened. And then it goes on into a story of how this has happened to them repeated times. And at that point, they want to talk to you. And a lot of it is just professors and administrators being open to the students. Um, I've had a, a couple of professors that I absolutely love who are just like, hey, just drop by my office hours whenever. If you just want to talk to me, I'm there whenever. And I think the part of the reason why some of these students on campus feel that they are burdened with this responsibility is because nobody is asking them. Um, it's more of like, um, the topic comes up, like let's say something happens and then Seamus responds or um, administrators respond. And then like the black community is just, or people of color just sitting here and nobody's asking them any questions. They're just kind of like, talking about it amongst themselves and nobody's took the time out to ask them how it's affecting them directly. Everybody's just trying to see how it's affecting them without speaking to them first. And they're assuming instead of asking these students, hey, when this happened, how did you feel? Um, and I think a part of that too is that a lot of these administrators are scared and some of them just don't wanna know because um, then they take on that burden and that responsibility. When really, if we just share these things together, there's a better chance at the end of the day, we're all gonna understand each other a lot more. And then everybody, how they were talking about pushing that needle, that needle starts to get pushed more and more with each conversation. Thank you. Aaliyah, would you like to weigh in? 
Yeah, I definitely um, felt that question. And like Noah hit it so on the spot, um, especially um, after being student body president last year or this year, whatever you want to call it. Um, I guess for me, I noticed so much of like, I always had a responsibility of answering everyone. You know, like it wasn't genuine. And I could tell people were kind of like tokenizing my experience because I was finally a black woman as president, right? Um, because the last black president was LeVar Stoney. Um, and so after all of that, I think it's just so, it just is clear just to be intentional and be genuine. So even how um, faculty members kind of create their classrooms, are you actually addressing, we, um, we want diversity, we honor that, we create a safe space. Are you just kind of listening to everyone that always responds? Are you actually seeking out the people of color? Are you actually meeting them where they are? And I think even at JMU, um, Noah said it so well, everything's kind of always put on CMS or, you know, this is, you kind of just put to the side. And so you, you always feel like you're the one that has to solve everything. But if JMU was so more genuine and just had um, town halls, check-ins beyond just when a current event happens. You know, like, why is it when a current event happens, this is when we start talking about it? No, this is every single day. This is our lives. And you have to recognize that. Like, when we make decisions, we're always thinking in the back of the head, um, back of our head of, oh, I'm African-American. So what am I going to, how am I going to navigate this? You know, like, we're always thinking about our race. We're always thinking about these things. It's so critical. And so honestly, um, and I, I say this all the time in my Paul Jennings speech, I literally said, how are you going to honor Paul Jennings' legacy when we have Confederate um, halls on campus? Like, how are you really going to do that? Like, we have a living monument on campus now. Paul Jennings' spirit is literally on campus, and we're, how are we really honoring him? If we just kind of push to the side and want to talk about this and we feel like we have to. And so just be intentional, be genuine, and I think it shows in that you can tell you're not tokenizing someone when you actually just care about them, you know, when you really seek them out. And so those are just kind of things I think. So this is now at least the second time the topic of building names has been raised. Um, with four minutes left, and I want to be respectful of everybody's time, can somebody speak to the challenges of creating an inclusive society with buildings named for slave owners and known racist? Um, I can I can talk a little bit about that. Uh, I know that uh, that a, a couple of times the phrase a predominantly white I haven't said. Um, I, I actually like to use historically white institutions because it, it clearly names who they were for and who they were built for. Um, and so I think that it's very, really pretty clear to know that like the folks here work and study um, at a historically white school uh, that was not built for us and was not built with us in mind. Um, so I think that, you know, where uh, the, 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 when we talk about institutionalized racism, it's not just the police killings of black men and women. It's, it's, it's the subtle reminders that this space is not for you. Um, and so when we have Ashby Hall and, and Jackson Hall uh, on, on campus, it's a constant, it's a constant subtle reminder of, of who was here and, and who owned this place and, and who it was built for. Um, and so I think some of, some of, the, some of the steps that the JMU can, can take is, is, really, is really thinking critically um, and, putting, and putting their actions where their values are and stating clearly um, that black students face a, a continual subtle assault on their value and their belonging uh, by, by by being reminded of 
of slavery. Um, and, I, and I think that, that, that those are the subtle but important and symbolic steps um, that JMU can start to take um, to actualize um, the mattering and belonging of Black students and Black faculty. I might just uh, quickly add that uh, Jackson Hall is currently, uh, Justice Studies is moving into Jackson Hall when the renovation is completed. And um, so we're currently um, in the process of renaming Jackson Hall. I don't know what the name will be and what the process is, but. I'd like to mention something while I still have a little bit less than a minute. Uh, two things. Uh, I, I think there needs to be more immediate action because gradualism does not support Black students at all. Gradualism isn't going to um, bring security and whatnot for Black students, especially when it comes to the names of these, um, these uh, dorms and these halls. Uh, and one last thing that I'd like to mention is that uh, us at JMU, we need to hold our um, police officers here in JMU and also in Harrisonburg accountable um, because they, we have the same issues here that they have all over the nation. So it is important to say this is an issue and it needs to be addressed within our community. I want to, um, from the bottom of my heart, thank our panelists for educating us tonight. Um, it's my honor and my privilege to work with all of you.